to the Explore Us. Time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. sunny drawing room in Rye House in Hertfordshire, where a 10-year-old tutor lass named Catherine Parr is balancing a leather-bound book on her knees. She waits patiently for her siblings and cousins to quiet down already so that their tutor can continue reading aloud from the Aeneid. Catherine loves to learn new things. Don't get her wrong, she enjoys practicing her needlework and reciting biblical passages as much as the next gal. But what she most looks forward to are French lessons with her mother, who is due back from court later today. Like most noble Tudor girls, Catherine is educated at home, and she receives an excellent education from her mother, Lady Parr. In establishing a small schoolroom in her brother's home and encouraging her daughters to learn, Lady Parr isn't as revolutionary as she might sound. She's part of a fashionable new movement at court, inspired by humanism, that has educated women officially trending. Catherine is encouraged to be hungry for knowledge, and she makes a point of developing her education herself as well. Little does she know how much trouble her learned and passionate opinions will one day get her into, and how savvy she'll have to be to keep her head as England's queen. Catherine Parr will be our guide as we explore education for women in Tudor England. We'll discover how, and how much, Tudor girls are being taught, what subjects they're studying, and how Catherine, Henry's sixth and final queen, made smart the new sexy. And as always, we'll be joined by our time-traveling Tudor expert, Elizabeth Norton, whose book The Lives of Tudor Women is a must-read if you're enjoying this series. Now, grab your sharpest quill, your favorite book, and brush up on your Latin. Let's go traveling. But first, a shout out to some of my patrons. My newest pirate queens, Sean, Amanda, and Valeria. My newest lady presidents, Jennifer, Hane, and Samantha. My boss ladies, Anne, Celia, Luna, Don, Patricia, Annabelle, Monique, Natalie, Michelle, Jessica, Sophie, and Julian, Elizabeth, Amy, Tanya, Grace, Nuria, Rebecca, and Sarah. My adventuresses, Kat, Deborah, Terry, Jessica, Joe Marie, Anna, Stephanie, Carlos, Jessica R, Sano Nusuno, Iris, and Kelly. My warrior queens, Samantha, Ika, Alexis, June, Neve, and Sloan, and Kate. My imperial empresses, Bridget, Katie, Samara, and Faye and Whimsy Soapworks. And my lady pharaohs, the fabulous Laura and the incomparable Courtney's. Patrons play a huge role in keeping the show going. It's because of them that I was able to hire my amazing research assistant and support writer, Carly Quinn, without whom I just couldn't have done season three. For a couple of bucks a month, patrons support an independent creator and they get access to exclusive bonus episodes, contests, the Explorers yearly calendar, full interviews with guests like Elizabeth Norton, and more. To find out all about it, just go to my website. How does Catherine Parr go from keen and eager ten-year-old to the aging Henry VIII's final queen? It's a long and winding journey. When Catherine arrives at court in 1542, she is 31 years old, a fairly financially well-endowed widow who has been through two husbands already, and she's not really looking for a third. As we learned in previous episodes this season, widowhood can be a real sweet spot for Tudor women of a certain station and situation. They very well may have gotten hold of money and lands through their marriages, and they likely have more control over those assets and their lives than they ever have before. Catherine comes to court at the invitation of her brother and sister, and she becomes an unofficial member of Princess Mary's household. 
Although she spent most of her life in country estates and castles of the north, Catherine is no novice when it comes to court politics. Both of her parents were courtiers. Her father, Sir Thomas Parr, was once a trusted ambassador and emissary of Henry's, and her mother was one of Catherine of Aragon's favorite ladies-in-waiting. In fact, Catherine Parr was even named after Henry's first wife. Awkward? Catherine is attractive, vivacious, and scholarly, and she thrives at court. One contemporary wrote that, She is of a lively and pleasing appearance, and is praised as a virtuous woman. It isn't long before she catches the eye of one super handsome Sir Thomas Seymour, the late Queen Jane Seymour's brother, and he begins to court her. They fall deeply in love and are actually engaged to be married. Until the king decides to stick his codpiece where it doesn't belong. It seems that Henry has also noticed Catherine, and he's intrigued. After the disastrous Catherine Howard fiasco, the aging, ailing Henry is attracted to Catherine's intelligence, sobriety, and maturity. Whereas wife number five was chosen for her bedroom eyes, wife number six, he feels, needs to be chosen for her nursing skills. Gentlemen, I desire company, Henry told his buddies. But I've had more than enough of taking young wives, and I am now resolved to marry a widow. And thus, despite the fact that Catherine is already betrothed to his brother-in-law, Henry begins sending her gifts and visiting her daily. We can imagine that she is less than thrilled with his advances. After being moved around as a pawn from one marriage to another, Catherine's finally free to marry for love. It doesn't seem fair that she should be robbed of that, especially by a man who has beheaded several of his past wives and is very much past his prime. Here's Elizabeth Norton. She was quite reluctant to marry Henry VIII and seems to have seen it as God's purpose for her. You know, she talked about God withstanding her will, um, you know, insisting that she marry Henry. But what King Henry VIII wants, Henry VIII tends to get. Though Catherine has not volunteered as tribute, you can't very well say no to your country's monarch. Plus, the match is definitely advantageous to Catherine's family. So, even though she is in love with Thomas, Catherine rejects him and reluctantly accepts Henry's proposal. They're married at Hampton Court Palace on July 12, 1543, a little more than a year after the execution of Catherine Howard, and Catherine Parr is officially proclaimed queen on her wedding day. One of the first things Catherine does as Queen of England is take an interest in the education of her subjects. But what is the current state of the English educational system in the 16th century, particularly for us ladies? Are we learning as much, or the same things, as the boys? The Tudor period kicks off an era of great educational advancement in England. The growth of grammar schools and universities skyrockets, particularly during the reign of Elizabeth I. Although formal girls' schools won't become commonplace until the reign of James I. Tudor women are surprisingly educated all the way down the social scale. And that's always quite surprising because I think we, we tend to think of women in particular not being able to access very much education and particularly poorer women. Under Henry VIII, tutors are only just starting to acknowledge the benefits of an educated populace. And so there is no organized system of state education for everyone. Instead, there is a random network of private and local schools with wildly different educational standards. Tudor boys are usually sent to school at around six or seven, and they leave in their teenage years for jobs, apprenticeships, or university. The most affluent are educated at home when they're young, before moving on to very exclusive and highly expensive grammar schools, before attending one of only two universities that exist at this time. Oxford and Cambridge. Middle and lower class boys attend a local village or parish school to learn the basics, and then move on to an endowed or common school before taking on a job or an apprenticeship. Endowed schools are private institutions usually funded by a wealthy merchant or a noble patron. And while some of them are free to attend, many require attendance fees, whereas common schools are open to everyone and almost always free. Almost every parish will have a free school that is attended by the children of the parish and that's normally in the parish church and it will be taught by the priest and the children will go every day to their lessons and we know that they were open to girls and to boys and there are many many 
examples of girls also attending these schools. Um, a few censuses of the poor were carried out in the 1570s um, in various places, um, particularly Norwich, and even very, very poor families, their young children until about the age of nine are in school. So they are getting some education. They spend two, maybe three years getting a more thorough understanding of subjects like religion, reading, and basic math. For girls, religious education is very important, as they're meant to be the moral pillar of their future households. And most of what we are learning is all about making sure we'll be able to help our husband out. Most young girls are taught the very basics at home by their mothers, who are generally in charge of their educations. They might learn the alphabet, some rudimentary reading, and to recite a prayer or two. As Elizabeth Norton points out, Tudor women are more educated than we might imagine. Most will go to school for at least some of their childhood, but many of them don't have the option of continuing their formal studies for long, and they often leave school early for marriage, an apprenticeship, or to help supplement the family's income. School lessons are often considered less important for girls, because the more useful and practical skills are being taught at home anyway. Daughters are learning domestic skills such as sewing and cooking, everything they'll need to become a successful wife and mother. I mean, it's not like she's going to become a doctor or anything. The idea is to raise good wives, good housewives. So women will need to run their homes, maybe help out in the business. So, you know, arithmetic, reading and writing, that would help. They're certainly not intended to be scholars. But it's, you know, it's felt that being able to read and to write and, and do your maths is, is an advantage for running your household. But that's the primary focus. And actually, I mean, particularly upper class girls, their education also looks at needlework and dancing and music because these are skills that women should have. What are female literacy rates like in the 16th century? It's hard to say for sure because our methods for measuring literacy in history aren't the most accurate. They're usually based on how many women are able to write their signatures on legal documents. Although this method doesn't tell us much about their reading, many women are taught to read but can't write, and being able to sign your name doesn't necessarily mean you can read what you're signing. In our episode on marriage in Tudor England, we met a woman who was duped out of her fortune by a man who presented her with a contract that she certainly couldn't read. Estimates for female literacy in Tudor times are pretty low. But it's highly likely that most Tudor girls receive at least some reading lessons. City girls are usually more literate than village girls, and older women and widows are more literate than younger ones, as they often have to take care of financial accounts and manage estates. There's nothing more frustrating than having to rely on a man to conduct and understand your business. Susan Hills, a London maidservant, depended on her husband to read and write, and when he went abroad to serve his master in Italy, he wrote her a letter that ended, I fear you can hardly read this because you do not practice. Indeed, Susan had to go to a literate friend, Sarah Hodgkinson, for help reading the letter. Soon after that, Susan began practicing her reading with a tool her husband bought her, an English-language Bible. Hot tip, if your husband buys you books, you know he's a keeper. Women in the professional classes are extremely literate. They have to assist their husbands with things like reading bills and account books, and school teachers and midwives are often more literate than servants or maids, simply due to the nature of their jobs. So we know that many Tudor women are reading, but how many of them are actually writing? Reading is a much more widespread skill, as most Tudor schools teach it, but not every student has access to specialized writing teachers. Plus, the age at which schools begin teaching writing often coincides with the age that poor children are pulled out of school to start working or to help out around the house. Writing isn't considered a necessary skill for girls to learn, not like reading, and so the majority of poorer Tudor women probably don't know how. Nonetheless, some middle and upper class women can, although their letters are often riddled with spelling errors due to their tendency to write in a more oral, conversational way. Tudor women usually write in an elegant italic script, because the more masculine, secretary-style hand that professional men use is considered more difficult to master. That said, many Tudor women keep diaries, pen letters to friends, and write poetry. 
And, thanks to the growth of print, there is an abundance of pamphlets, ballads, and books that women can enjoy. The printing press was brought over to England by William Caxton in 1475 or 76, which was a real game-changer for literacy. Before that, books in England were copied out by hand, called manuscripts, a word that in Latin means written by hand. As you can imagine, that meant there were way fewer books in circulation, and they were coveted and expensive. Even Caxton saw his printing press as a means of producing limited print runs for the wealthy and fancy. But over time, printing changed the education game for everyone, making knowledge more accessible, and thus making learning something more people could do on their own. Even so, noble women are by far the most literate and educated class. And in their letters to friends, books are often a subject of discussion. Most of the books mentioned by Tudor women in their letters are religious in nature, with the next most popular topics being household manuals and the news. Tudor women are avid consumers of current affairs, and apparently enjoy reading about British and European political events. Because someone has to keep up with Henry's tumultuous love life. Aristocratic women make up the majority of known female letter writers in the Tudor period, and so it makes sense that they are also the women who are writing books. The first English woman to appear in print is Henry VII's mother, Lady Margaret Beaufort, who translated a religious text in 1504. But otherwise, female authors aren't very common. Between 1500 and 1700, less than 2% of all books published in England are written by women despite the fact that print culture is booming. If women are writing books, they're usually writing about raising children, household advice, or religion, as these are considered safe topics for them to talk about. The translation of religious works is also a particularly popular intellectual pursuit for noble women, which is something our Queen Catherine Parr is going to get very into. To the surprise of no one, rich noble boys have the best educational opportunities. While Tudor boys are sent to certain schools based on their wealth and status, Tudor girls are excluded from all secondary schools. Because of course they are. Girls aren't sent to secondary schools in the 16th century because most parents don't think it's worth it. And even if they wanted to, they couldn't. All high-level institutions of learning, endowed schools, grammar schools, and universities generally forbid women from attending. Of course, schools like Oxford are totally fine to have a female patron give them money. Margaret Beaufort, Henry VII's mom, became rather famous for being a patron of education and of universities in particular. She uses her influence to appoint people she likes into professorships at Oxford. They write her letters thanking her profusely for her patronage, but they don't bother inviting her to sit in on any lectures. The thing is, no one's suggesting that girls should be educated in the same ways as boys. Richard Hired, a very learned man of the Tudor period, expresses a commonly held belief when he writes, I have heard many men put great doubt whether it should be expedient and requisite or not a woman to have learning in books of Latin and Greek. After all, he goes on to say, such learnings will inflame their stomachs and make them more inclined to vice. Okay, Richard. So what are boys learning in all these posh grammar schools that are so keen on keeping girls out? Common subjects include math, geography, classic literature such as Virgil and Homer, and Latin grammar, which is how they come to be called grammar schools. In fact, most Tudor grammar schools don't actually teach English, an oversight that is only corrected by schoolmasters in the Elizabethan era, who finally realized that learning Greek and Latin is not of much use to the majority of their students, most of whom pursue careers that require reading and writing in their native tongue. Most Tudor classroom lessons are extremely dull, including rote memorization, copying out passages with quills, and reading from a horn book, which is just text pasted onto a wooden board shaped like a paddle. Grammar school teachers are always male, and part of their job is to teach good manners. One of the official school statutes at the Royal Grammar School at Guildford reads, Honesty and cleanness of life, gentle and decent speeches, humility, courtesy, and good manners shall be established by all good means. 
Pride, ribaldry, scurrility, lying, picking, swearing, blaspheming, and such other vices shall be sharply punished. Punishments usually involve schoolmasters beating their students with birch rods. Grammar schools are known for their harsh disciplinary methods. Ah, the good old days. For those who have private tutors and are educated at home, their academic lessons are often supplemented by learning important courtly skills such as writing, hunting, and etiquette. These tutors are often university graduates, and of course, they're always male. Many noble women, such as young Princess Elizabeth, have male tutors. Noble boys receive rigorous humanistic educations, which are meant to prepare them for public lives as courtiers, lawyers, diplomats, or members of parliament. You know, all the jobs tutor men won't allow women to do. Humanism is a philosophical movement sweeping 16th century Europe that argues that education is necessary for personal growth, an idea that is largely embraced by the court of Henry VIII. Humanist educational curricula emphasize humanities topics such as grammar and rhetoric, logic, discourse, ethics, philosophy, literature, Latin, and the classics. And it is these topics that upper-class boys are learning in their grammar schools. Opportunities for humanistic education are not accessible to everyone. While the tutors are all for commoners learning how to read, of course, full humanistic education is still reserved for the upper echelons. You know, as long as they don't have a vagina. The Reformation plays a huge role in transforming tutor education. Protestants believe that literacy is the key to salvation, and one of their main goals is making the Bible available in English rather than Latin so the general public can read and interpret the Word of God. They no longer have to rely on priests and bishops to translate. Whereas the humanists are encouraging tutors to learn to read for personal growth, Protestants are encouraging them to learn to read for personal salvation, all of which fuels the growth of schools. So what does all of this mean for us ladies? Does humanism and the Reformation change anything for female students if they aren't even allowed to attend secondary school? The Tudor era is a period of moderate gains for female education. The fact that local village schools allow girls to gain a free education, even if they're just being taught to read, is rather revolutionary. And much of that is thanks to the Protestants. Tudor girls who are expected to behave as the pious moral compasses of every household, are actually encouraged by the Protestants to go to school and learn to read the Bible. It'll teach them how to become good Christians, how to raise their children virtuously, and help them understand and accept their places in relation to men. Gee, thanks. Humanists also encourage educating women, sort of. It is fashionable for noble women at court to study humanistic texts, and Princess Elizabeth in particular excels at her course load of classical literature and languages. But while humanists claim to be in favor of educating everyone, they advocate for a more restricted curriculum for women, and make it clear that too much education is downright dangerous for us gals. Why are Tudor men so deeply suspicious of an excessively learned woman? First of all, they seem to scare Tudor men. It is for the good of the woman not to be too smart, otherwise she might never land a husband. After all, nobody likes a blue stocking. That derisive term for a woman considered too learned is, in fact, English, though it won't be coined until around 1790. It apparently will spring from the London Literary Salon of one Elizabeth Montague, who throws parties that feature intellectual debate between ladies, rather than the expected card games and simple dress rather than fine fashion. Apparently, some guy turns up to one of these in some blue-gray hose instead of the traditional black ones, which is where this word comes from. To be clear, none of these dangerous intellectual women were actually wearing blue stockings, but here we are. Girls are also kept out of schools for fear that they will distract boys from their learning. Sir Thomas Eliot advises girls be kept out of sight whilst boys are trying to learn because they might cause the sparks of voluptuosity within boys to increase into so terrible a fire that therewith all virtue and reason is consumed. Girls aren't merely threats to other people's education. They are also capable of spreading their mental inferiority like a particularly infectious disease. 
Confused? Let me explain. Once a boy turns seven, it is advised that he be removed from the weakening company of women and either sent to school or placed in the hands of a male tutor, lest the presence of ladies negatively impact his ability to learn. One Sir Robert Sidney wrote to his wife, For the girls, I cannot mislike the care you take of them, but for the boys, you must resolve to let me have my will. For I know better what belongs to a man than you do. Indeed, I will have him from his nurse, for it is time, and now no more, to be in the nursery among women. Clearly, Sir Robert could care less about his daughter's educations. But he was adamant that being around girls for too long would have detrimental consequences. Unfortunately, Sir Robert isn't alone. While the education of daughters is often left to mothers or governesses, Tudor mothers are absolutely not allowed to interfere in the education of their sons. These rules may make it seem like boys have the attention spans of goldfish, but Tudor men seem to think that it is female brains that are the problem. Priest and teacher Richard Mulcaster argues that girls are intellectually less able, and that Naturally, the male is more worthy. He does admit that they have some capacity to learn, and that in fact, they seem to learn faster than boys do. But he is convinced that this doesn't really matter because of their natural weakness, which cannot hold long. The idea that women aren't suited for education because of their biological parts is echoed by Princess Elizabeth's humanist tutor, who praises her capacity for learning languages. She will come to speak five fluently by giving her this backhanded compliment. The constitution of her mind is exempt from female weakness, and she is endued with a masculine power of application. In other words, she's more like a man than a woman, because she is a monarch. And that makes her different than your average lady. Princess Elizabeth is lucky. She receives a rigorous education fit for a future queen regnant. But most noble women are only encouraged to become educated enough to efficiently run a household. When Jane Tutoff's daughter is sent away to be educated in the household of another noble family, Jane wrote this of her hopes for what she'd learn. Let her learn to write and to read and to cast account and to wash and to brew and to bake and to dress meat and drink, and so I trust she shall prove a great good housewife. In fact, most noble women are being educated in the hopes that they can provide intellectual entertainment for courtiers and to provide a ready conversational companion for their future husband. Education for Tudor women essentially consists of teaching girls to be sober-minded, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, housewifely, good, obedient to their husbands, that the word of God be not evil spoken of. Thus, even noble women who have the privilege of private tutors are almost never taught skills such as public speaking or rhetoric, because women aren't expected to work outside the home or to play a public role in society. In his wildly popular educational manual, Instruction of a Christian Woman, Juan Luis Vives writes, As for eloquence, I have no great care, nor a woman needeth not. For it neither becometh a woman to rule a school, nor to live amongst men, nor speak abroad and shake off her demureness and honesty. Thanks, buddy. Upper-class women have the best chance at a thorough and elevated education. They're taught informally at home an education overseen and conducted mostly by their mothers and possibly a governess or a private male tutor. Though, of course, you have to make sure to keep a beady eye on what sorts of education he might be providing. Remember Catherine Howard's music tutor, Henry Mannix, who gave her lessons not so much on the flute as in, uh, sexual harassment? Ugh, that guy. Although their wealth affords them greater access to education, the amount someone like Catherine Parr receives is largely dependent upon their parents' views toward learned women. Tudor mothers have a huge hand in this as well. Here's Elizabeth. We can normally assume that the mother will be involved in the early education, so she'll teach the letters, um, and also will be involved in choosing the tutors. You also do get um, female governesses who are also there to teach them. Um, the most famous example is Kate Ashley, who is um, Elizabeth I's lady mistress, and she's very much hired to teach the young Elizabeth. Um, later on, 
she passes the education over to William Grindle um, University and then Roger Ashen, both university teachers. But certainly Kate Ashley is responsible for Elizabeth's early education. And so she's a very educated woman herself. Most mothers are keeping this education quite narrow, relying on the Bible and some religious texts and little outside them. As far as they're concerned, over-educating their daughters isn't going to help them any. As Grace Mildmay will write about her mother's limited scope of education, She would teach me not to subject myself unto mine own will and frame me to bear patiently whatsoever adversity should assault me in this world. Catherine is lucky on this front, as her mom is all for learned women, being one herself. As a child, um, her mother certainly controlled her education. In fact, to the extent that um, one nobleman was advised to send his his son to be educated with Catherine Parr's mother because, you know, it was the best place for learning. So she's very, very well educated. It helps that, in this era, there is a push, at least in certain circles, to educate women more thoroughly. There's very much a movement early in the 16th century to educate upper-class women, and that comes from Thomas More, who basically challenged himself to educate his daughters as though they were university students. And, I mean, he had phenomenal success. Women, um, they're translators, they're highly educated, and it, it became trendy, fashionable. Um, so all the royal family and the nobility start educating their daughters really, really well. The ultimate goal of a noblewoman's education is to help her secure an advantageous match on the marriage mart. And so lessons include sewing, embroidery, dancing, religion, basic humanist texts, and literature. In contrast to poorer women, most noble girls are taught to write, mainly by copying out letters and correspondence. And some of them will go on to translate, write, and publish literary texts. Most women learn how to manage a household and keep accounts, how to speak a conversational language such as French, and perhaps how to sing or play a musical instrument. These are all skills prized in courtly women, along with hostess skills like how to behave well at parties, as well as engage in polite conversations with grace and decorum. Noble girls are often placed in the households of influential families to polish their social skills and extend their network of social contacts. Again, I refer you to Catherine Howard, a finishing school failure if ever I've met one. Let's be clear. Just because women don't have access to as much formal education in Tudor times as men do and aren't learning logic and geography, that doesn't mean they aren't knowledgeable. If the goal of education is to prepare someone for their social role, then for women, this means learning how to be a wife and mother. And in that sense, Tudor women are extremely well-schooled. In Tudor society, a government official isn't expected to know how to use a needle and thread, and a woman isn't expected to know Latin. In fact, if the definition of an educated woman is a woman educated like a man in the 16th century, there would have been maybe a dozen women in all of England who fit the bill. We can acknowledge that there are definitely barriers to equal education in the Tudor era while also acknowledging that many Tudor women are very educated in their own way. Queen Catherine Parr is one such woman. Although she hasn't had the rare privilege of an education like her stepdaughter, Princess Elizabeth, is getting, Catherine is certainly no slouch. She is universally admired for her wit, her eye for fashion and interior design, her dancing, and she is a natural at playing both diplomat and hostess. She is well known as a keen patron of the arts, and many ambassadors praise her pious household and the loving relationship she forms with Henry's children. Henry, too, positively adores her. He even appoints Catherine his regent in 1544 when he leaves for France on a military campaign. Catherine proves more than capable of ruling in Henry's stead, and her short stint in charge of things opens her eyes to the possibility of affecting change on a higher level so she turns to something she is truly passionate about, religion. Catherine was brought up Catholic, and her second husband, Lord Latimer, was Catholic as well. He even participated in the Pilgrimage of Grace, a rebellion against Henry's Protestant reforms, which led to his home being seized and ransacked, twice, one time with Catherine and their stepchildren still inside. 
Catherine knows firsthand how dangerous openly debating religious issues can be, but she isn't afraid to show her radical reformist colors. One of the issues she is most passionate about is making the Bible available in English. Remember, before the Reformation, most people didn't have access to scripture in their native language. This is an important and hotly debated issue, and Catherine isn't going to sit around just talking about it. She obviously becomes very interested in the religious reform. I mean, she's clearly England's first Protestant queen, very well read with the scriptures, um, very much knows what she's talking about. In 1544, the same year in which she serves as regent, she translates and publishes various prayers and psalms. Girl is busy. She does this anonymously, but the next year she will publish her first book under her own name, entitled Prayers and Meditations, a collection of excerpts from various holy works. Her next book is called Lamentations of a Sinner, an original work based upon her own religious experiences, published in 1547. And thus, Catherine becomes the first Queen of England to publish her very own book. Her education is, you know, actually really, really important to the development of women writers in the period and also, you know, in, in how we view her as Queen. But she also throws herself into what is seen as every mother's duty, educating her many royal stepchildren. Catherine knows a thing or two about stepmothering by the time she becomes queen. She has long been stepmother to Lord Latimer's two children, and is now stepmother to Henry's three, Princess Mary, who is only four years younger than Catherine, Princess Elizabeth, age 14, and Prince Edward, age 6. Three children born of three different mothers who all served as queen before Catherine. This could be a really charged and awkward situation, but Catherine excels at nurturing her charges, encouraging them in their studies, and making them feel loved and wanted. She has a great relationship with all her stepchildren, and one of her greatest successes as queen is helping to repair Henry's relationship with his daughters, who by this point have been both declared illegitimate and pretty much banished from court. Great parenting there, Henry. Catherine cajoles Henry into inviting the girls back to court to live with them, and is credited with getting Mary and Elizabeth restored to the line of succession. Catherine works hard to befriend Mary, and they end up becoming good friends, as they both love music, fashion, and scholarship. Elizabeth and Edward both come to regard Catherine as a real mother figure. Catherine takes the education of her stepchildren very seriously, and learning and intellectual pursuits are common topics of interest and conversation between them. When Edward is eight, he writes to Catherine, My most honorable and entirely beloved mother, I have most humbly recommended to your grace, with like thanks, both that your grace did accept so gently my simple and rude letters, and that you give me so much comfort and encouragement to go forward. Let me repeat, the guy is eight. When's the last time your eight-year-old humbly recommended anything? Catherine also encourages Mary, a very accomplished Latin speaker, to translate several Gospels and publish them in her own name. When Catherine writes a book, Elizabeth translates it into Latin, French, and Italian and embroiders the cover as a gift for Henry. Damn, girl! Of course, Catherine isn't the first queen to value learning for the children. Catherine of Aragon was heavily involved in Mary's education, and she set a great example for how and what courtly women would learn. After all, it was at Catherine of Aragon's behest that Juan Luis Vives wrote The Instruction of a Christian Woman as a textbook for Mary. But Catherine uses her queenly platform to make learning seem cool for everyone, not just princesses. She makes a point of publicly emphasizing the importance of female education, as well as reading banned religious texts and patronizing reformist thinkers, a trend set by another of our royal tutor guides, Anne Boleyn. By making reading and learning fashionable at court, it comes to host a pool of elite learned women able to hold their own when speaking with male courtiers. She creates an almost scholarly environment for the ladies in her courtly circle, and her passion for reading religious materials is well noted by contemporaries. One man wrote, It is now no news in England to see young damsels in noble houses and in the courts of princes, instead of cards and other instruments of idle trifling, to have continually in their hands either psalms, homilies, or other devout meditations, or else Paul's epistles, or some book of holy scripture matters. 
But Catherine begins to realize that her own education in certain subjects is lacking. In order to make a difference, she needs to learn a lot more about the subjects that interest her. Catherine is seriously committed to self-improvement through education, and it's clear she works hard at it. In her book, she actually describes herself as an unlearned woman who bewailed the ignorance of her blind life. When she becomes queen, she pulls a serious Elle Woods studying for the LSATs montage, hitting the books hard, eventually becoming fluent in both Italian and Latin. Yes, queen! Catherine isn't the only tutor woman to turn to education after marriage. Becoming a self-educated tutor lady is incredibly common in the 16th century, with women trying to better themselves by learning later in life. I guess noble wives needed something to do besides caring for their husbands. Might as well start a book club. Aristocratic women, in particular, form networks in which they share books and ideas with one another. Women in the lower classes, too, are using their later years to devote themselves to study, and literacy is an ongoing project for many women. Henry encourages her yen for intellectual discussion. He and Catherine even carry their personal books with them as they travel from palace to palace, and they discuss them with one another frequently. Henry loves these lively debates with his wife. You know, until he doesn't, which is going to get our queen into some seriously hot water. But first, let's return to Catherine's published book, in which she reflects on her conversion from the foul, wicked, perverse, and crooked ways of Catholicism. Although the book does not have so many personal details that it can be called an autobiography, it is written in the first person and is a deeply personal account that reads almost like a confession. Cast me not out of your presence, although I deserve to be cast into hellfire. If I should look upon my sins and not upon your mercy, I should despair. For in myself, I find nothing to save me but a dunghill of wickedness to condemn me. Catherine's work is pretty radical in its anti-Catholicism. At one point, Catherine accuses Catholic priests of being so blinded with the love of themselves and the world that they extol men's inventions and doctrines before the doctrine of the gospel. This is probably why she waits to publish it until after the more conservative Henry dies, although he surely would have enjoyed her passages hailing him as the new Moses for delivering the Reformation to the English people. Henry himself is no slouch when it comes to religion. He enjoys theological discussion and even wrote his own religious book back in 1519. He encourages Catherine's interest in theology, you know, until she begins questioning him a little too freely. She begins to, um, she gets into the habit of going to Henry while he's unwell and effectively trying to convert him to arguing with him on religion. I mean, it's one thing for a wife to read enough to agree with her husband, but not to start actively contradicting him. The extremely radical Catherine and the much more conservative Henry begin to butt heads and argue about religion. And when Catherine's fervent Protestant ideals start to anger the conservative faction of Henry's court, he decides it might be time to teach her a lesson, one she will need to respond to wisely if she wants to keep her head. It's now 1546, and Henry is getting annoyed by Catherine's constant attempts to convert him and promote religious reform in England. He has had enough opinionated wives for a lifetime. He one day complains loudly about her becoming a doctress, you know, you know, and he's, he's being taught by his wife. And um, Stephen Gardner sort of steps in, a bishop of Winchester who's very conservative and, you know, sort of complains about Catherine and you know, says, oh, you're right, you're right, your majesty. And, I mean, Henry has an arrest warrant drawn up for Catherine for heresy. Because investigating his wives has never ended badly before. She is a heretic, um, absolutely. Under the religious law in Henry VIII's reign at that point, she's clearly a heretic, so it's really dangerous for her. Gardner's investigation centers around Catherine's supposed relationship with a woman named Anne Askew. Remember her from our episode on religion? Anne is a 25-year-old radical Protestant who has been arrested for heresy. 
But instead of learning her lesson and keeping quiet from then on, she is arrested again in 1546. Unfortunately, Bishop Gardiner takes this opportunity to torture Anne, hoping to gather evidence against Catherine. But Anne holds up under torture better than most fully grown men would, refusing to incriminate her queen or anyone else before she is burned at the stake. Stephen Gardiner, the holy man of torturing young women, is unfazed by this. He insists that Henry is cherishing a viper in his bosom and claims that he can prove Catherine's heresy if Henry will just allow him to arrest and interrogate her. Henry actually agrees. Meanwhile, Catherine continues to debate religion with him, not knowing that her husband has just greenlit her arrest. Henry summons his physician, Dr. Wendy, who is also close to Catherine, and informs him of the heresy plot before swearing him to secrecy. Luckily, a member of Catherine's household finds a copy of the articles drawn up for her arrest. Understandably, when Catherine gets her hands on them, she freaks out. And hearing his wife is ill, Henry sends Dr. Wendy to her, who spills about the heresy plot. Catherine knows she has one chance to fix this, and that she has to do it fast. The next day, Catherine goes to the king pretending that all is well, only to find him with a bunch of his male courtiers. When Henry tries to start a debate with her about religion, thinking to test her, Catherine refuses to fall into the snare. Instead, she flatters her husband. Catherine insists that she would never try to instruct Henry about religion. After all, he's the expert and she's only a woman. She only debates with him in order to learn from him, she insists, and to try to distract him from the painful ulcers in his leg. She says, Yet must I, and will I, refer my judgment in this and in all other cases to your majesty's wisdom, as my only anchor, supreme head and governor, here on earth, next under God, to lean unto. Henry eats up this display of groveling submission and forgives Catherine on the spot. Apparently, the arresting officers don't get the memo, though. When they arrive to arrest Catherine the next day, the king screams at them. So suck on that, why don't you, Gardiner? Was this all a ploy to get rid of yet another inconvenient, mouthy wife? It doesn't seem so. Unlike how things went down with Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard, Catherine Parr is allowed to go to Henry and beg for his forgiveness a thing that wouldn't have been allowed had he not wanted to forgive her. And she is smart enough to know how to come out on top. Here's Elizabeth. And it's a really interesting story. I mean, it does rather look like Henry was trying to scare her into submission rather than necessarily arrest her. The sort of the circumstances of the dropped warrant and the doctor being informed does rather look like Henry didn't particularly want to execute Catherine. He really just wanted her to, to be quiet, to shut up. Because... Actually, that's what most Tudor husbands wanted. They wanted a submissive wife. Even though Gardner's plot to get rid of Catherine fails, she definitely gets the message. Her political influence decreases, and she is very careful to play the part of the obedient wife from then on. When Henry dies in January 1547, R.I.P. closet full of bejeweled codpieces, Catherine is not with him, and she learns that she has not been made regent for Edward as she had hoped. At least Henry treats her well in his will, leaving her several houses, a large sum of money, and ordering that she be treated as queen for the rest of her life. Once again a widow, and Princess Elizabeth's official guardian, Catherine can finally give in to her heart's desires. And what her heart desires, and has always desired, is her old flame, Thomas Seymour. She moves to Chelsea with Elizabeth, then causes an absolute scandal by secretly marrying Thomas just a few months after Henry dies. This is Catherine's fourth marriage, but her first time marrying for love. As truly as God is God, she wrote her paramour. My mind was fully bent. The other time, I was at liberty to marry you before any man I know. If only I could tell you they lived happily ever after, but, well. Henry's children aren't thrilled about Catherine's hasty remarriage. Mary is offended by Catherine's lack of respect towards her late father, 
And then Sir Thomas Seymour, who is, remember, Prince Edward's uncle, manipulates the young prince into supporting them, and so he is hurt by the business as well. Elizabeth has the worst time of it, though. While living under the same roof as the newlyweds, Thomas starts exhibiting some pretty creepy behavior, inappropriately touching and tickling her. Not cool, Thomas. That's the future Queen of England. Her governess orders him to stop, to no avail, and eventually has to inform a heavily pregnant Catherine about what's happening. No doubt upset and horrified by her husband's behavior, she sends her beloved stepdaughter away for her own protection. Though married four times and many times a stepmother, Catherine Parr is only 36 when she gives birth to her first natural-born child in August of 1548. Unfortunately, she gets childbed fever a mere month after the birth of her daughter, Mary, and dies. A year later, her husband, Sir Thomas Seymour, will be executed for treason. Their daughter, Mary, is taken in by friends and, we think, dies in infancy. Although Catherine's life ends in tragedy, she leaves a remarkable legacy behind her. She is the first English queen to publish an original book in her own name, and her funeral is the first Protestant burial service for an English queen. Her passion for education and reform will cement her status in history as one of England's best but least known queens, and her stepdaughter, Elizabeth, will follow in her footsteps and become one of England's greatest monarchs. And on that note, long live the queens. Thanks for listening. If you like The Exploress, tell a friend about it, share the link with someone you think will enjoy, or leave a review wherever you listen. It all really helps spread the word. You can become a patron, of course, or shoot me an email and say hi at theexploresspodcast at gmail.com. I love hearing from listeners. You can find a transcript for this episode, along with images and a list of my sources, at theexploresspodcast.com. Much love to Carly Quinn, my research and writing assistant, who is the queen of my world. The Tudor-era appropriate music you just enjoyed comes courtesy of classical guitarist John Sayles. Thanks to Paul Gablonski for his theme music and logo, and to the following legends for their vocal stylings. Grace at Graceful Voice. Chris at Naturally RP. King VO and Ed Jenkins. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>